dude here we go i'm excited i am uh I, let's let's do this thing we've uh, we've been talking about really cool things this morning honestly we could probably take this podcast in a number of areas uh including talking about brian's neighborhood and that doesn't mean this brian we got a double brian episode right we do so two is right, better than one two is I, I get enough of you i just i want some other brian right now. yeah this is the three b's of podcasting right this is what it's yeah, all it about. is and we're going to get this thing going because people have things that they need to do. So, uh, you know, on behalf of the Hot Isle, I am one of the co-hosts. I am Brian Carpenter. And with me... Brent Piatti, good morning. Good morning. Man, every time I talk to you, my day gets better. And we're going to... Every time people hear us, hopefully their day gets better. Let's go. The goal of this show is we're going to dis- discuss storage. And we're going to dis- discuss it around kind of the data-intensive enterprise. Um, so... Is there a single platform that can accelerate business through big data, database, virtualized workloads, and kind of all of the above, and really help out you know people as they try to do their their private cloud, uh, you know as they try to solve problems in their enterprise, all of these kind of things. And if so, what does it look like? And so we brought somebody who thinks that they have an opinion on this. Matter of fact, they know they have an opinion on this, and that is Brian Carmody. Brian, welcome to the show. Brent and Brian, good morning. Thank you. How'd I do? Did I do okay? Eight, of ten, eight out of ten. Okay. Well, we're starting. We can, Strong. That means we Strong. only have we only have up to go from here, hopefully. So, uh, Brian, uh, we have you as the CTO of Infinidad. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about what is what is the CTO of Infinidad responsible for? Oh gosh. So, I would say that my my job is to make sure that, from a technical perspective, that our customers are taking care of, that we're building the right things, that we're responsive to their needs, and that our strategy and roadmap is aligned with those of our customers. And tactically, you know, it's it's about trying to get trying to get all the cats to walk in a row, which doesn't really work. But yeah. That is one of my favorite visuals, by the way, is uh, back in the day, I think at one of the Super Bowls, uh, IBM, you know, who does fantastic marketing, um, brought out a video of like uh, cat herders and it had all these cowboys that were on their horses chasing around cats. And um, the visual that that represents of, of trying to get cats to do what you want them to do is everything about trying to get things done. So I love, I don't, I don't know if you remember that from the Super Bowl, but if you don't go to YouTube, hopefully they have it. Do you remember that, Brian? I I know that the Super Bowl exists, but Uh-oh. that's that's about my limit of my <laughs> okay. knowledge of football. I, I watch it for the commercials mainly, uh, and you know, and then there's the the every once in a while I like to watch the Cowboys try to win it back in the '90s. So, um, you know, before before Infinidat, you know, you've you've kind of you, it seems like you've I'm going to go ahead and say this you've been around some some of the similar people from where you're at today in your prior history. So why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of your ramp to Infinidat? You know, like when you were at IBM around XIV. And you know what you were doing before that, how you got to where you are today. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh sure. Um, so I I've been with this crew for about ten years. So I, about uh, gosh, about about fifteen years ago, I was uh, I was working as a as a Unix sysadmin, and on my first day, they walked me into the customer the customer's data center. And there was this huge hulking piece of equipment, this big white thing. It was the most beautiful piece of hardware I had ever seen. And I asked what it was. And they said, oh, that's the Symmetrix. We just bought it 
We paid millions of dollars for it. It's the most expensive thing that the company's ever purchased. And I said, what is it? And they said, it's a storage system. It's a disk drive. And uh, I remember I, I just knew right away. I was like, I have to learn what this thing is, how it works. I was magnetically attracted to it. I was magnetically attracted to the product, to the problem set around it. Um, we were, this particular shop was a, a large Oracle relational database shop. And so the IO challenges around Oracle at the time, you know, were, 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 were pretty serious. And just in a funny turn of events, you know, a couple of years later, I ended up meeting Moshe Yanai, the guy behind the technology. We ended up working together. We worked on the XIV project at IBM, which was, uh, which was just an awesome, awesome experience. And then that was kind of the dress rehearsal. And then we, you know, we kind of decided that, uh, that, that the world actually did in fact need another storage company and that storage was still an unsolved problem in 2011, you know, when, uh, when Infinidat got off the ground and we had a vision for how to solve it. And the past, uh, the past couple of years has been quite a ride, quite a ride at, at uh, Infinidat. Awesome. So cool. So listen, I, I want to understand uh, kind of what got you into technology because clearly you've been an IT dude for a while, right? Uh, you also, it seems to be, have a, have a background in software development and also co-founded a company a while back. So I would like to, I'd love to kind of get your, your idea of, um, you know, software development and, and what that, if it's still near and dear to your heart and then co-founding a company and now to move to a startup, what, what lessons did you learn uh, doing that? And then uh, were you able to apply those, uh, you know, later on here in life, especially with, with Infinidat? Oh gosh. Um, so I guess what I what I learned pretty pretty early on what I realized is that I just I like being with my friends and being collectively in charge of our own destiny. And when you work at a big company, um, when there's people who don't know you, who control your budget, they control your priorities, um, and they point in which way to go. Um, that's comforting, I think, to to some people. Um, but for me, that creates tremendous anxiety. Um, so, you know, I've always been in the, you know, since I've been since I've been working, I've always been working on on business ideas and and, and projects and and trying to realize things. But uh, you know, in, in particular, it was it was pretty it was pretty interesting going from IBM to Infinidat because overnight it was the most incredible culture change that you could ever imagine. You know, and I'm not, I'm not just making an embedded, you know, joke about moving from Lotus Notes to uh, to Gmail, which alone, you know, was a, was a life changing and probably added five years of, you know, to my life, not having to use Lotus Notes anymore. <clears throat> but just the the idea that if you had an idea and you wanted to go, you wanted to go make it happen, you just do it. There's nobody to ask you. There's nobody to ask for permission. There's nobody to uh, to tell you you can't do something. So I think the common thread was like I figured out pretty early. I like being in charge of my own destiny. I like working with with friends. Um, but the kind of switch from you know starting in, in development, you know, I, I am I am a terrible developer, and I do not commit any code uh, in Infinidat, and I do that out of mercy to our QA engineers. Um, but that being said, I love 
I love, love, love developers. And I, really the coolest part of my job is I get to go back and forth where I'll spend a couple of days on the road and I'm 100% meeting with customers. So every brain cycle, you know, for a couple of days is focused on understanding what customers are doing, what their challenges are, and listening and trying to convert that into, into things that we can do internally for success. But for a couple of days, it'll be completely outward, outward focused. And then the next day, I can spend the entire day and have the honor of working and being surrounded just by crazy smart, genius, freak software developers. And it's a completely different frequency. The way their minds work is different from the field and from salespeople. Um, it's, you know, developers are from Mars and, and, and salesmen are from Venus or, or something like that. Um, and that ability to go back and forth between those two cultures and those two operating systems um, is, is absolutely delighting. It's what keeps me sane. And uh, it's, it really is my favorite. My, the favorite, my favorite aspect of the job. Right on. Well, clearly you chose a path that uh, has, has been beneficial to you. Um, I noticed you had a, a background in, in electrical and computer engineering, so you chose this on, uh, or at least decided you, know, you wanted to try this path. So what, what brought you to commit yourself to a degree of that sort? Was it uh, some, <clears throat> some upbringing, some experience that you had? What, <clears throat> what brought oh, you to gosh. that? Oh, uh, gosh. So... <laughs> When I was uh, when I was 11 years old, wow, I haven't thought about this in a really long time. Um, when I was 11 years old, my dad um, brought me to a uh, brought me on a field trip to Lamont Darty Geological Observatory, which is uh, an earth science lab in um, in uh, in the New York City metro area. And I was 11 years old, and I was walking through the tour, and we walked, and I, I looked into this room, and there was a, a scientist in there. And he had a lab coat on, and he had this piece of equipment with wires coming out of it, and he had it attached to something else. And I raised my hand, and I asked the, um, the tour guide, I said, who is this guy, and what is that thing? And he said, this guy is a, is a, is a scientist, and that thing is called an oscilloscope. And I said, what does it do? And he said, it visualizes electric currents. And I was absolutely obsessed with that idea that you could visualize. And I said, okay, so electrical currents are, must be way more complicated than I thought they were. And then I ended up asking Santa for a oscilloscope that Christmas, which I did not get. And um, from that point on, I just, I knew that I wasn't, I, I knew that I was going to do something with technology. And it became just all about learning as much as possible about how, how all that stuff worked and how, you know, how modern society is built on top of these fundamental principles. And so it kind of just became a natural, uh, a natural option, you know, when I went off to uni to like, to focus on that. That's awesome. And by the way, damn it, Santa, give the man an assault. Do you have an oscilloscope today? I have three oscilloscopes. There today. we go. 
It's awesome. Um, so let's get into this thing. I mean, we want to. We I've. We, I want to bring up. You know, you mentioned you mentioned Moshe. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Moshe, and then we're going to dive right into this whole uh, what you're doing. Um, so you know, we we know Moshe by name. Uh, you obviously know him a lot better than I do. Uh, it's really interesting from our perspective, which is that. You know, we've seen pretty good articles around there. Specifically, Chris Malor um, had his pretty good uh, article on Moshe. Uh, you know, but he is, um, you know, for lack of better term, a bit of an enigma, right? But he's an icon. He's like a he's like a very silent icon. So, um, you know, tell us tell us a little bit about him, right? He's a very fascinating character from the from the storage landscape. Uh, you know, give us your perspective on the thing that is Moshe. <laughs> Moshe is definitely. Uh... He's one of the most interesting people I've ever I've ever met, let alone worked with. Um, so I, I definitely agree with your assessment about 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 Moshe. He he's not a publicity. He doesn't. He's a very private person. So he doesn't um, he doesn't really particularly enjoy talking to the press or talking about himself. He really likes keeping a low profile. He's not comfortable, um, you know, in the in the in the public sphere. It's just not not who he is. But um, what I can say that's unique about him is a couple of things. First, his superpower is that he can see long-term technology trends, 5, 10, 15, 20-year trends, as clearly as I can see my hand in front of my face if I hold it up. It it truly is a freakish superpower. And that gift and that ability really is the, I think, the underpinning of the success that he's had and the success we're having now at, at Infinidad is just that ability to completely see through the kind of hype cycles and see the long-term trends and track to that. That's number one. Number two, he is without a doubt, unequivocally, the most tenacious person who I have ever, certainly ever worked with. When he decides, when he collects the information and he, dis- and he makes a call and he decides what the right thing is to do, he can move mountains to make it happen. And he has an incredible ability to bring together groups of people who could all be, they would all be CEOs or CTOs of, of their own companies. But to bring these incredibly, the people I work with are these like incredibly talented, independent thinkers, and then get this group of people to all move in the same direction and track toward a common vision. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. Um, so he's, he's a genius in that regard, but what cracks me up is, you know, here's a guy who played a huge part in defining the modern information storage industry and made huge contributions to how humanity stores its knowledge in the modern era. And watching him fight with his laptop, trying to get PowerPoint to present 
on a projector and his email never works and you know it's uh the it's 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 funny to see how somebody can be brilliant at the at the big important things and and then be completely in trouble with uh with the small day-to-day moshe would be the worst it like help desk support guy um in the world i've been trying to get him to buy a mac for like five years but he just he, he's not open to it well i i mean we we can see that all around i've i've worked for plenty of uh, brilliant and powerful people who have to call me because they didn't turn on their printer so it's it's all good uh you know we we need those people by the way everybody on the help desk needs a moshe in their life because it continues to drive their profession, right? And uh, if the problems all went away, there'd be a lot of things that we'd have to we'd have to fo- we'd have to change our focus. So, uh, aside from the fact that his kryptonite is his PowerPoint uh, and his superpower is seeing long-term technology trends, um, what what did his superpowers tell him? And when did y'all sit down and say we need a new thing? There is a problem, and we've got to solve it. And what was that problem? Right, like what's what's missing, or, or what did what did y'all set out to solve here that you think wasn't already solved? Sure. Um, so, you know, after the 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 IBM exit, which was a pretty successful exit for for XIV, Moshe went into retirement. You know, for the for the second time, and the genesis of Infinidat kind of goes back to a um, a discussion that he had. So I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. What he, what he kept hearing pretty consistently, you know, from from his friends that are still in the industry, from customers, was that storage was still an unsolved problem. Despite being a $40 billion industry and there's hundreds of companies, it's incredibly well capitalized. Um, you have titans like EMC and IBM and Hewlett Packard that are on it. You have these, you know, incredibly innovative startups that are nipping at their heels and trying to trying to eat their lunch despite all of this there was no one who said that storage is a solved problem everybody still complains about it every cio says i spend too much money it's way too, it's still way too hard but what really drove it home for for moshe was a discussion that he had with a um with a computational biologist who told him that the the biggest problem that he had in his lab had nothing to do with biology was what to do with all the data that was coming out of the sequencing machines, how to analyze it, how to store it, how to make sense of it. And he said, Moshe, how is it that this is still an unsolved problem? And that person who who said that to him was his son, Itai, who now runs the genomics uh, lab at uh, at NYU here in New York. And that conversation is what brought and kind of got Moshe to reactivate the old Symmetrics uh, uh, founding team and got the guys to come together. And he challenged them to come up with a software architecture that was an order of magnitude better than everything else. It had to be a tenth of the cost. 
It had to be a tenth of the, the latency. It had to be 10 times more reliable. And it had to be all those things simultaneously. And that is the that was the the forcing function that got Moshe out of retirement and got 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 the company off the ground. <clears throat> so I just I, the reason I love that story, guys, is because this this beautiful thing that we've built and you know this really cool business that that is thriving all went back to a family, a father and son sitting around the table complaining about problems at work and then helping each other solve that problem. And that's what got us to the present. And the breakthrough of when it went from a tactical to a strategic idea was realizing that these don't these problems in the, in this genomics lab weren't domain specific. It's the same problem for the 10x growth of humanity's data over the next decade spread across IoT and how to absorb workloads for machine learning and for uh, AR, VR, and new ways of, of, uh, of, of interfacing with computers and visualizing data. Um, it wasn't a domain-specific problem. This was actually... Um, a humanity problem, a humanity scale problem. And that was what turned it from a tactical into a strategic problem. And that's what, what really put the, the gas behind the company and, uh, you know, and started giving us the early momentum. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, I, I doing research about the company and you and things like that. Uh, one of the things you specifically brought up, which I thought was striking um, more just from a from a data perspective, was you did bring up the the genome sequencing and you know the fact that it it uh, over the years it went from a million bucks to sequence the genome down to about a thousand. It was like a you know a five x order of magnitude. Um, and there's the use case of uh, you, I think you said it was like a, a nation state or a country that wanted to sequence every single genome of the person, right? Uh, so the first file into their medical history would be a genome sequence to enable, uh, you know, better healthcare um, as they age. So very prescriptive type healthcare. Um, so very, very interesting. I, I guess my question is, is that, is that what you targeted initially with, um, with the, you know, with Infinidat when you built it out or did you have the broader um, industry, if you will, uh, in mind? Yeah, great question. So, um, our, our early traction when we were still prototyping before we had a website and before we had, uh, you know, before we, we really had a sales force, um, our, our initial focus was in uh, life sciences. And that was where we kind of proved the concept that this very unconventional kind of radical software architecture could actually work. That we could sell these systems, they could solve problems for customers, that we, we, we proved product market fit in life sciences. And we made a little bit of money. But as once we started hiring our first sales guy, 
and then our second salesperson and starting to grow the business, the the mix of where our systems were being deployed shifted pretty radically. And healthcare and life sciences is today around 10% of our business. But the big three right now are financial services, banking, and insurance. And healthcare is only 10%. But the big three are finance, telecom, and cloud. Each of those are more than 20% of our uh, of our business from a revenue perspective uh, in, uh, in in the last quarter. So there's been kind of a shift, you know, the early the early kind of prototyping and proving the concept was in was in life sciences. As we've grown, the early um, the early traction as we were scaling was definitely in banking. And the use cases were pretty straightforward. People just wanted to consolidate. We have this row of monolithic storage arrays we want to consolidate this down to the smallest possible footprint can we put these 11 floor tiles and we can we consolidate this down to one can we instantiate a a a step function reduction in cost per gigabyte can we drive our service levels up but in the the early ramp it was all about consolidation and uh, the kind of displacement of those of those leg- legacy monolithic arrays. But for the past, especially for the past year, the, 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 the traction and the growth has evolved into next generation workloads. It's about analytics and it's about cloud providers. Um, and they're both very interesting, and they're they're not mutually exclusive. There's a lot of overlap between the two. But for anybody who's in the storage industry, you all have to be paying attention to analytics. It is, you know, just like when Symmetrics got off the ground in 1989 and 1990, and everybody thought that Moshe was crazy. They thought he was a crazy person. All the analysts were... Uh, were crapping on the on the product, and they said IBM has storage locked down. But then relational databases and the internet happened, and the the stunning growth of the Symmetrics platform over the course of the '90s that built the modern EMC into what it is today was built on the back of this idea that terabyte scale relational databases were going to be a thing. And they and, and it was the best solution that could accommodate that. Whereas even just, you know, <clears throat> a couple of years before that, people thought that the idea of a of a terabyte scale relational database was absurd. That there was, you know, maybe a handful of customers in the world that would ever have a ter- terabyte scale relational database. That same phenomenon is happening right now and it's happening with petabyte scale analytics and I'll, you know I'll, I'll give you an example um, the largest Splunk deployment in the world runs at one of the one of the large US telecoms and the entire data set lives in one floor tile on one infinibox and you know the key difference though is that 
it's not Oracle and Postgres and MySQL and and DB2 that's accommodating these huge um, these huge in, in, these huge increases this time around. That's what it was in the 90s. That growth right now is uh, things like Splunk and Elk and Spark, and we believe that the that history tends to repeat itself, and you know we absolutely see that the potential for that um, for that stunning growth, if if for the right product and the right time, and we think that analytics is going to be the engine uh, in this over the next decade that makes that happen. Yeah, I was actually just talking to somebody uh, this week, um, and you know, the kind of the comment came up is that the. The, the storage market, the um, kind of what people look at as the storage market is a certain size. And that if you look at both I, IDC and Gartner uh, between their 2020 and 2025 predictions, they're seeing that the machine learning, AI, ML, DL, all that kind of stuff, the size of that market and the storage that is expected to help support that market is going to be three you know somewhere between three and 10x between now and the next five years so are you all yeah. seeing a similar trend is that what you believe oh absolutely oh absolutely we, we we totally agree with that but it's funny um and this is this is important for for designers for people who build storage systems um you know we humanity's data footprint grew looking back 10x over the past decade but that that growth was driven by social media. So the 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 seminal storage systems of the past decade, if you look at the Google file system, if you look at Haystack and F4 over at Facebook, these were systems that were designed to meet the workloads of that past decade. It was all about cat pictures and pictures of your food. It was object storage. Um, it was highly, highly distributed caching, going all the way out to uh, to the edge of networks and whatnot. The next decade, if we agree that the next decade is is going to be about analytics, and if we agree that IDC is correct, saying that sixty percent of that data growth in the next decade is going to be created by businesses not by end users like it was in the in the past decade looking back it stimulates some very interesting questions about what the software architecture looks like for a storage system for the next decade in order to accommodate these where it's not end users that are creating the data but it's machines generating data that's consumed by other machines and i think guys one of the big mistakes that a lot of the especially the incumbents in the industry are doing and also customers that are being, you know, that maybe don't have the best advice and and uh, and counsel from their uh, from their from their re- from the, you know, from the analyst community and and uh, and whatnot. Is we see an awful lot of people that are trying to build technologies from the last decade that are optimized for the last decade. And they're kind of looking backwards rather than forwards about the way that they're designing and building the systems. So I think the, the net net is that 
the next decade of workloads are going to be very, very different from where the growth has been over the past decade. It requires new types of new types of software architectures in order to support it. And I think those those types of bets have already been made by the different companies. I think it's the most it's the most interesting from a computer science perspective. It's the most interesting um, it's the most interesting part of the game is figuring that stuff out. So, so Brian, uh, you, you you know we're talking about streaming analytics. We're talking about uh, you know large in, ingests of large amounts of data. Um, you had a, a quick YouTube video. I think it was uh, like a tech field day. And basically, you just kind of, let's put it out there, you called bullshit on randomness uh, of, of data patterns. Uh, so can you touch on that and tell us about, you know, where the, you know, where the, where the you know, the perceived mix-up is? Oh, sure, sure. So, you know, if we look at what the, the true requirements are for, for modern workloads, they require sub millisecond they require microsecond response times over very large data sets over petabyte scale data sets and the 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 the, the io patterns are not sequential and one of the the mistakes that 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 folks fall into is they think that random is storage people sometimes will think that random is the opposite of sequential, that it's it's one or the other. And one of the core insights that we had about trying to figure out how to build a system that could do microsecond level response times over multi-petabyte data sets is that they're actually not... Um, they're related concepts, but random is not this, the opposite of sequential. Sequentialness or spatial locality of reference is a type of correlation. It's a way that a stream of incoming IOs can be organized and grouped and critically that predictions can be made. And these are very simple, trivial algorithms. These are the look-ahead algorithms that even the old, crusty, you know, monolithic storage arrays have had that um, technology in place uh, for you know for decades. And these are the things that that used to speed up your table scans, you know, uh, on an old relational database. And the the critical insight for you know for today's workloads is that. Spatial locality of reference isn't the only way that we can identify clusters of correlated IOs. That there are other dimensions. And if you take a, um, a very high dimensional view of incoming, if you create a very high dimensional model of incoming IOs, where space, the linear LBA space, is just one axis but you have a very large number of other axes that are all times. They're time series. You can, with the same level of, uh, of precision that an old, crusty, monolithic storage array can recognize that 
you're accessing LBA1, LBA2, LBA3, LBA4. I'm going to go get 5, 6, 7, 8. You can use algebra that has existed for 100 years without creating any new, uh, any new, new types of mathematics. You can detect those clusters. You can create a model with a very high level of dimension, dimensionality. And you can make predictions about the future. And you can reduce that then down to, you know, moving from the classifier problem to the prefetcher problem. You can then use some mathematical tricks to collapse that model down to a two-dimensional uh, space that we operate in, which is just time moving forward and then the linear LBA address space. And you can collapse that very high dimensional model down to a two dimensional space. And then you can send those instructions to a prefetcher and use that to manage a memory hierarchy where you have a little bit of very fast media that does most of your IO. And for us, that's DDR4 DRAM today. And then you can have a spillover cache for the ones when you're when you miss and you're wrong and you miss a prediction. And for that, we use NAND flash today. And then you can use a uh, very low cost hyperscale disk drives to store to store the cold data. But the key is using um, intelligent math to manage that memory hierarchy. It allows you to build systems that essentially behave at scale like a RAM cache. Our global DRAM hit uh, ratio globally is in the low 90 percentages, but it's dragged down by a couple of systems that are outliers. If we kind of drop off the bottom, you know, 5%, probably 96, 97% of every IO in our entire global footprint, we have about 1.7 exabytes of storage deployed around the world, 96, 97% of those reads are all coming out of DRAM. And then the remaining percentages are coming out of NAND flash with you know the latency penalty that comes with that. And then the occasional straggler, which we, which we look at very closely anytime that happens and where we have to go all the way back to the origin, um, back to the, to, the, to the disk storm to go get the data. We call that a double cache miss. Um, it allows you to build systems that are very, very cheap because these disk drives are, uh, are incredibly cheap compared to NAND flash, certainly compared to, uh, to DRAM. And it allows you to build systems that kind of meet those goals that we were talking about earlier. You can build systems that do microsecond latency for, read, for reads and writes, but it does it at multi-petabyte scale. And we can sell these systems at a street price with very healthy margins that make our, our investors, that delight our investors. And we're selling it at a street price that's less than what it costs the other vendors to buy the parts to build their all flash arrays. And so we kind of, as a result of this, we have kind of a, a built-in competitive advantage from a sales perspective, um, unless a, a traditional you know, media-defined storage system, let's say it's an all-flash array from, from Choose Your Vendor. 
unless they're willing to have negative margin on you know on a sale unless they're willing to invest in, a, in an account it's mathematically impossible for them to um to offer the system at our price point on a per terabyte basis this only works at petabyte scale so you know one of the things i want to be clear of and this is why we have a pretty friendly relationship with um a friendly competitive relationship with emc with pure with ibm etc is their bread and butter is you know call it the, the 100 terabyte and below workloads we don't even have systems that are um that are available in the portfolio at that at that capacity point we start at 250 terabytes that's our baby system and then the big systems scale up to 10 petabytes of capacity so we can deliver these stunning economics we can deliver faster than all flash performance because most of the ios are coming out of dram but we can do it at a price point that's closer to hyperscale object storage than it is high-end enterprise disk but only at scale the economics only start working around 250 terabytes and above and in a nutshell that's that's how it works that's how we do what we do and it all the, to your original question brent it all goes back to that insight that random is not the opposite of sequential sequential is a type of correlation and there are other types of correlations and if you can find those if you can identify those clusters and if you can feed that into a prefetcher um, you can manage memory hierarchy that behaves like a uh, like a huge ram cache even though it's much 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 less expensive than petabytes of dram cool so uh and just to kind of summarize right the the the, the idea is you have uh, some amount of controllers. Within them, you have a DRAM cache. You have NAND as a secondary cache, and then a persistence layer uh, within um, spinning media, if you will. Um, so I guess, is, is, there, is there an idea behind uh, policies or pinning things to tiers, or is the NAND specifically um, there as a, you know, a, a quote-unquote caching layer? Um, talk to us about that real quick. <clears throat> sure. Um, so we use NAND flash as a spillover cache. So these are the these are the, the NAND the, the NAND flash in our system is for reads where we have a cache mesh where it's it's not in the DRAM. And it's basically a um, a second level of caching that prevents us from as as much as possible from ever having to go to disk. Because the problem with the hyperscale, super large nearline SAS drives is they have an incredible price point. They have incredible aggregate bandwidth. And so, you know, that's another reversal we've seen. You know, we don't do prefetching for sequential I.O. We stream them directly off the drives because disk drives have become so good at sequential I.O. that if you try to do things in RAM and try to, you know, reorder things, you just you actually regress the sequential, the throughput of the machine. All you do is you assemble, you sequence, um, you marshal the IOs, and then you send them to the um, to the initiator that's requesting them. But these drives, you absolutely cannot do random IO to them. Random IO shreds nearline SAS drives. So another way of thinking about the 
the way that we use DRAM in our architecture is you can think of everything that I've described as a machine that turns, quote, random I.O. into sequential I.O. Log structured writes for writing to the flash and to the spinning disks, and then uh, sequential reads for prefetching and for cache management. So you can, you can think of all the intelligence in an InfiniBox system above the JBODs. And just for clarity, by the way, if you open up our rack, we have like the most boring hardware that you could ever imagine. And InfiniBox is three batteries, three Linux servers, and eight JBODs, and that's it. Everything above the JBODs is just this machine that turns non-sequential I.O. into sequential I.O. and vice versa for reads and for writes, or for writes and for reads, respectively. And that's the that's the gist of it. Okay, and so uh, my my specialty on the hot aisle is that uh, I'm the simple one. Uh, Brent's the brains of the operations, and so I want to simplify this thing because you've said some things that made me think things, and now you can tell me if I got it right. And that's the fun part is uh, this is when okay. I find out how just just how wrong I am. Um, what it sounded like earlier when you were talking about the idea of taking in, uh, especially when we look at things like genomics and these kind of things, solving solving for the actual fundamental problem. Uh, what it what it sounds like you're saying to me is that you do things like streaming ingest and other things better than others at a uh, different price point. And so, am I am I understanding that you're saying that basically you've got uh, a much better um, solution for high parallelism and all these other things? Where just you've got the bandwidth without all of the other things that people have to do to get that same kind of bandwidth? Or uh, what am I looking at here? Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I think you've got it. I wouldn't go as far, uh, because I'm an engineer, I would never make a sweep, sweeping statement and say that we're the best at, uh, at anything. I could build you a system that can beat an InfiniBox on, on any workload, um, but it would require $10 million worth of hardware versus a million dollars you know, for, for, to, 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 um, to, to do it on mine, you know, to put some actual numbers around it. You know, our, our current shipping model, um, what we call the F6000 series, can pretty comfortably, under pretty much, you know, any reasonable, um, any reasonable, uh, you know, spectrum of, of use cases, deliver about 12 and a half gigabytes per second of bandwidth. And depending on the, the size of the, of the, um, of the hot data set can do up to a million IOPS. And so we found that this hits, you know, 99.999, whatever percent of use cases at this scale. But I can build you a supercomputer, you know, storage system that can do a hundred gigs per second. So I don't say we're the best at anything, but certainly at a price point that actually makes new types of computing possible for CIOs, I would say at this moment, you know, we're, we're probably, we're probably leading in that regard. Um, and, you know, I can't, you can't separate the price, the price point from the other aspects of the value proposition. We are unabashedly trying to make storage cheaper. We think that storage is too expensive. We think that the, the, the price points for quote enterprise storage is holding back the state of the art. It's holding back customers uh, from 
from from realizing these kind of grand visions that CIOs and CTOs have after they go to an IDC conference. Um, they realize they can't do it if they're paying a dollar per gig or two dollars per gig for their storage. It needs to be much less than that. Yeah, and if I if my diatribe didn't have it, I, w- I did try to say you did it for the you kind of solved the streaming problem at price, right? And that was part of my notes. So hopefully I did say it. So um, the the other thing is uh, I remember talking with Chris Malore a couple of years ago when when Brent and I were actually trying to talk him into coming on the podcast, and he'd just come out of a session with you guys where you kind of had done like an NDA dump with him and he was trying to figure out how to write his blog post. Uh, and he was actually bouncing some of his ideas off of us. And uh, one of the things that he described, and I'm going to go ahead and kind of take some liberty here. It was like, um, it was like the, da- the data, it was the data center's Swiss army knife at petabyte scale, right? So it's like great cost, but it's not just block. And so you're getting, you're getting all the great use cases of, uh, fiber channelized SCSI, uh, NAS, mainframe, all these things kind of in one frame. Uh, and you don't see that a lot. So are you guys are you guys trying to also say, not only are we doing, we're giving you good costs, we're giving you great use cases, uh, we're giving you good density, um, but we're also solving multiple different types of protocols for you uh, in that same in that same form factor. Is that really, is that something you guys are doing for people and are, are they picking up on it? Oh no! It's exactly it's exactly what we're doing. C- central to the you know to the vision of of where we're trying to help the industry get to is trying to get give customers a way to move away from these silos of storage. Um, if you and this is one of the things that 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 customer technologists are very frustrated with the incumbents about is that when they come in, they say, we have, here's our portfolio. And they put up a PowerPoint slide that has all the different things. And they see this is our best of breed for um, for um, relational databases and low latency block. This is our best of breed for tier two. Um, this is for home directories and NFS. This is our, our market leading product. This is our object storage platform. This is our mainframe offering. This is our... Uh, data protection, and, you know, backup to disk. And they're all separate products. And customers, if, 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 if businesses are going to, every CIO, you know, whether she admits it or, or not, wants to be make their businesses and their data centers more googly. They want to they be more googly. And the first thing you have to do if you're going to make your data centers run like a Silicon Valley mega data center is you have to have these large universal pools of storage. You have to have petabyte scale, you know, single buckets per data center. And then you have interfaces for particular applications that read and write into that. And, you know, again, it's a huge frustration that like people are saying, oh, we have all these different best of bead pro- best of breed products and you know we we remember that from the 90s and filer sprawl and all that stuff customers absolutely can't stand it it's incredibly expensive and the cool thing is the mathematics behind infinibox we don't code you know hints about the way that oracle works and use those hints to optimize the performance the way exadata does um you know we we the the, the mathematics we use is a generalized problem for correlation and cluster detection and, and whatnot. 
and it allows us to build a universal storage system that can do almost anything. For example, about 20% of our revenue, excuse me, 20% of our footprint globally is backup to disk. It's replacing data domains. Um, we had a, a, a great uh, US insurance company, a big monster monster insurance company. They're not a public reference, so I won't, I won't say their name. They replaced 22 data domains, data domain boxes with a pair of InfiniBoxes. But then they have other ones, the same SKU, the same exact product is running their email system. So it's a completely different use case. The IO patterns couldn't be, you couldn't conceivably create two data streams there that are any different, but the same SKU, the same product is able to solve both of those. So, you know, what, what you mentioned, Brian, about that idea of, I mean, I'm, I'm putting a, a word in your mouth saying a universal storage system, but I think that's kind of what you were, um, what you were getting at. It's absolutely central to, to our, to our strategy. Yeah, it was the smarter way of saying what I was trying to say. So that's okay. You put, I appreciate you putting <laughs> elevated words into my mouth. Um, and so the, so, so my other question for you is, you know, like as you're solving for cost and things like that, you're obviously leveraging, um, the current cost benefits. And so I'm just going to put my, you know, my customer hat, my industry hat on today that works, um, over time you're solving for price today. And that makes sense over time though. There's a story of the scale and price and density of flash drives in comparison with the growth of NL SAS being a full crossover. Um, and so where eventually it's like, oh, you're going to be able to go out and get a 16 uh, terabyte flash drive for what the price today is of an NL SAS. And I don't know if that's one year, three years, or five years. Uh, and obviously that's a long time to have to solve for because things are moving so fast. Do you all have a, a thought process or an answer to, uh, to that belief or that argument um, it, it, as far as how your platform is going to grow with that, or is that just completely untrue? <clears throat> is it never going to happen? Um, it's uh, it's highly misleading. So we we um, we get from customers all the time. Uh, all the incumbents and a lot of the all flash startups are putting these ridiculous uh, Excel charts in front of customers that show, you know, the price of disk. You know, converging with, uh, with 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 the cost of flash, um, and so it it they kind of lose credibility. I, I wish the the incumbents would stop doing that because in in one minute we can explain how you were just lied to. So here's what you do: if you want to create that impression to a customer who maybe isn't a sophisticated storage buyer, and you want to create the impression that uh, that that flash is going to be cheaper than um, than disk. Here's what you do. Number one, you compare um, you compare NAND flash to fifteen thousand and ten thousand RPM drives off of the you know the trend focus or the the um, or or whatever storage costs for that. And then you apply data reduction technologies. You tell the customer that um, our system because it's made out of flash, can do compression and data reduction, whereas you can't do that on disk drives. And then you give yourself a 5x, you know, delta, but you only apply it to the to the flash. And if you kind of, you know, keep adding all these things, you can create something and you can uh, give the impression to an unsophisticated storage buyer that um, NAND flash has or will 
you know, in the next decade crossover. But um, what, what I do when I'm talking with customer technologists and trying to educate them about what their options are, um, I, I refer them to uh, a great Google research paper. Eric Brewer um, is, is working at, at Google right now, arguably, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the best computer scientists of, of our generation. And he's working on storage at Google. So he's done with cap theorem and he's moved on to, uh, to, if you would imagine it, harder problems, which is storage related. And they made some great predictions in their data centers for disks research paper that they published in February of last year. And um, I'll quote directly from the, you know, from the paper. Disk drives are the central element of cloud storage at Google. SSDs are widely deployed in Google data centers as caching devices, but they are not used at scale for primary storage because the cost per gigabyte remains too high. And we expect this trend to, to remain like this for at least the next decade, end quote. So when it turns into an SE battle of he said, she said, you know, this, this vendor said this versus the, this vendor said that, we can say, if you don't believe me because you don't know who Infinidat is, you know, you're also arguing against Google, um, who's, you know, who's, who's, who's pretty good at this stuff. The fact is that modern storage systems, modern disk-based storage systems like Infinibox, we use the same data reduction algorithms that, that the Flash people do people that use flash for primary storage as opposed to caching. We use the same family of data reduction algorithms and they work exactly the same. And the efficacy of those, of those algorithms is the same. And just like Moore's law is pushing down uh, and allowing us to fit more transistors and it's driving down the cost of NAND flash, or it should in theory, I'm sure you know that flash prices are going up because there isn't enough fab capacity to, um, even if we wanted to, there is even if the cost was no was not a factor, there isn't enough fab capacity to store humanity's data on um, on uh, on on solid state medium, which I think is what what Dr. Brewer was getting at in the in the white paper. But in parallel with that is Carter's law that's pushing down um, or increasing aerial density of disk drives. So we have an incredibly tight R and D relationship with. Seagate and with um, HGST, Western Digital, now. And if you look at their consortium at the ASTC roadmap, they're predicting a, um, you know, if you look at the sequence of, of technologies that are coming out, you know, we're, we're on PMR right now and, you know, SMR as kind of a, um, as a stepping stone uh, and an enhancement of that. Hammer is right around the corner. That's dropping, you know, in the next 18 months. And then HDMR, uh, heated dot magnetic recording, which is BPMR, Hammer plus TDMR, is coming after that. That's in the um, the 2023 to 2025 timeframe. You know, so all in, we're looking at a compounding, uh, a CAGR, or a, uh, a CAGR of aerial density on the hard drives which beats the growth rates for, um, for even the most optimistic estimates for NAND flash. So 
we we don't predict that there's going to be any uh, structural changes in those uh, in, the, in in the in those phenomena. However, if there was a breakthrough and somebody figured out how to create SSDs um, and flash media that was a tenth of the cost of what it is today, we would immediately that quarter start shipping InfiniBoxes that use all flash. Um, when we let Chris Malore uh, loose in the lab, over that's dangerous. <laughs> and I told him, I said, you can photograph anything you want. And I said, you know, what could go wrong? Let Chris loose in our R and D lab with a with a with a with a camera. Of course, he found one of the all flash InfiniBoxes, the prototypes, um, and I think that's the picture that he used in the in the in the article that you're that you're talking about. Um, these systems, we have tons of them. They're not any faster than the production infinite boxes. All they are is just way more expensive. By swapping out the cold storage media, it doesn't make the systems faster because all the IOs are being served up at a higher level, um, you know, than than the uh, than than the than the backing store. But you know, for the long-term prospects, I mean, we have built a software architecture that we want to have last 25 to 35 years without any fundamental re, uh, re-engineering. And in order to do that, you can't be tied to any particular type of media. If you do that, you are a media-defined system. You're no better than an all-flash array. You're no better than um, any of the hundred, you know, other storage companies. Um, the idea of, you know, what our, our marketing department calls future-defined storage is storage that can use any media. We can take out the disk drives. We can put in flash, and it and it works. I'm sure you guys have read, um, you know, there was a breakthrough that happened uh, that allowed um, actual data to be written and stored with DNA. Yeah, that's if you want to write it. If you want to write a DNA driver for us, we can use DNA as the backing store. <laughs> the, 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 the software architecture that we have is, is media independent. Um, all it needs is bandwidth and, um, and a persistence capability. So that's our view. That's no, it's very cool. And, and Brian, unfortunately, we're we're woefully out of time. And I think this conversation around the industry uh, could continue to go on for forever. And I love how we were able to, you know, understand the InfiniBox and InfiniDat without really going into speeds and feeds. And and um, so so thank you for for that. Um, what I wanted to kind of bring us out with before we shut it down was one last question. You had made a comment back in 2015 about software-defined storage being like communism looks great on paper just not great in practice we're in 2017 hyper-converged infrastructure is is upon us um what are your what are your thoughts now if if at all different uh, and then what are your thoughts on on hyper-converged infrastructure oh sure so um software defined is uh it means different things to different people and what most customers are talking about when they talk about software defined is they say I want to buy a software a piece of software I want to run it on commodity hardware and I want to do the integration myself I want to control the supply chain for the hardware and um, that is what most people are talking about when they talk about software defined storage and what most people what most customers find out when they do their big SDS projects um, is that it works for small data sets. 
And it's the, by the way, it's the same thing for hyperconverged. They're delightful um, when you get, you know, from zero to a hundred terabytes. But when you start looking at the hardware bill of what's required um, in order to uh, in order to support that, you realize that for every million dollars of storage spend that you take out by not buying a pre-integrated storage appliance, you're adding three million dollars of incremental cost to your server spend. Um, so, you know that's why, you know that's why Dell. I think that's why Dell bought EMC is because they realized that it was a it was a a vehicle for for uh, causing customers to ramp up their server sales. It was a brilliant brilliant business move, but. I don't think it really helps customers, and because there's there's no way that you're gonna with any hyperconverged or you know kind of marketing defined you know SDS stuff. There's no way that you're gonna fit ten petabytes of storage, and you're gonna deliver it in you know with three Linux servers and eight JBODs. You're gonna need five racks. You're gonna need all flash. You can't use disk drives if you want to use the advanced data technologies. Um, you know that are that are available in the latest releases of you know some of the market leading SDS software. So I think the principle behind SDS is correct, and it's absolutely the way the industry is going, which is commodity hardware, and you and realizing that storage systems are software products. But where I disagree is that uh, the the right way to do it is to um, is to have customers uh, kind of assemble the parts. And uh, and whatnot. We think the right way to do it is to build the systems ourselves, to burn them in for a month, and you know we we think that's the only way that you can deliver you know mainframe class you know a seven nines SLA, three seconds of downtime per year. The only way to do that is if is if you control the hardware. So that's that's our take on SDS. Okay. No. Cool. Fair. I appreciate that. that that's great. So uh, with that, we're gonna we're gonna shut down the hot aisle today. Uh, Brian, when and where can we find you next? You speaking on any circuits, any upcoming events? Oh gosh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to my neighborhood coffee shop immediately after this and take my dog for a walk. Um, so we are thinking about doing another tech field day uh, later this year, and we have we're trying to figure out what is a great story to tell. You know, in in 2015, I. I uh, I gave a talk and I had just such a great discussion with those guys about how our system works and how we build it. So everybody's got that. What we're thinking about now is um, what's a really cool story to tell? What would be interesting to customers? You know, we have 1.7 exabytes of storage that are deployed globally and how you maintain 100% uptime uh, for, you know, for a multi-exabyte footprint. We think that might be an an interesting option. So if anybody has... Any interesting suggestions? Um, just like shoot me a DM on Twitter. My um, username is init zero um, of something that you think would be an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting topic for the discussion. Um, but that's that's more likely than not the next uh, the next way that we could uh, the next place where we could have a talk. Absolutely. Well, thanks. And I was going to ask you next. Um, you're on social media. You're on Twitter. Init zero is your is your handle. Uh, so, uh, you know, hit them up if you got any questions. For our listeners out there today, we want to thank you for listening. And let us know what you want to hear next. Uh, next, uh, Be social with us. Uh, we get a lot of great ideas from our listeners uh, on Twitter and, and other places. So with that, we're going to shut down the hot out today. My name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. 
Brian Carmody, thank you for being on the show today. Bye, guys.